That was the opening music to The Lady Vanishes, released by Gainsborough Pictures in 1938 and distributed in the United States by United Artists, and it was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And that's the movie that we're talking about today on Classic Movie Reviews. And I'm Matt Johnson, recording from the Seattle area. And I'm I'm lost in Los Angeles. Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, wishing all of you a uh, welcome return to our uh, Classic Movie Reviews. This movie is so much fun. It was... um, it was Alfred Hitchcock's uh, last British film until the 1970s. After he did this one, he moved to Hollywood and did quite a few pictures for David O. Selznick. But boy, you know, we could we could spend two months on Alfred Hitchcock movies. North by Northwest, Notorious, Saboteur, on and on and on. Oh, for sure. We could have a whole podcast just on his movies. But speaking of podcasts, you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net or in iTunes or Facebook. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews and you'll find us there as well. There are a lot of really well-known British actors in this at the time. Michael Redgrave, whose children went on, Vanessa Redgrave, Lynn Redgrave, Paul Lucas as the evil Dr. Hartz. <laughs> yeah. He usually played a more of a hero in movies. I think this was kind of type uh, going against type. And of course, The Lady That Vanishes. I tell you, May Witty, wonderful movie. Dame, Dame May Witty. I know I sent you an email or we visited about um, the opening of this movie and the special effects where you can obviously tell that it's uh, models and that kind of thing, but then they pan in and there you can see the people, the actual people. I don't know how they did that. I had to watch that about three times because the first time I thought, oh, that's just those are just some little cardboard cutouts, but then I was like, I think they were moving, and then I watched it again, and, and I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're moving, and then, yeah, the third time, they're definitely not just cardboard cutouts, and so I was really really trying to figure out how they did that. And the only way they could have done it at the time would have been some kind of like an overlay projection or um, like a cutout matte painting type of a thing. But that was definitely a model set. It sure was. Uh, but yeah, that was that was really cool. And then there were some other scenes as well where they had some great special effects of the train going by. Uh, or where one of the characters uh, was hanging out of the window and a, and a train goes by and nearly kills them. Oh, yes. Yes. And I was fascinated just by the special effects and the model work that they did in this movie. It was really, really well done. Boy, would that have been a labor-intensive process because they probably did it in late 1937, early 1938. Well, and it doesn't surprise me because uh, Alfred Hitchcock was always pushing the limits of what was possible with film. And when we talked about Vertigo, remember they he was in that film they invented that zoom pull effect. Oh right, right. They're pulling they're pulling back but zooming in and it makes it feel like you're you're kind of got vertigo yourself as you're watching it. But yeah, that that's kind of one of the things about Alfred Hitchcock that I really enjoy in his films is that he does push the boundaries of what was possible at the time i i enjoy those as well as he always has these big set pieces in saboteur it's the statue of liberty in north by northwest it's mount rushmore 
he loved to do those big uh, in the studio uh, set pieces. He said one time I read that um, he preferred doing it that way because he could control everything, the weather, the lighting, and the whole. Do you bit. think that's uh, in this movie? Do you think the gunfight near the end when they've got they've got uh, they're in a forest and there's a battle between the folks on the train and then the the corrupt police on the other side? That's kind of a pretty big set piece inside of a studio, I imagine. I think so. Yeah, I, it's well done, but I, I think it. I think it is. Well, the the, the movie comes from a uh, 1936 novel, "The Wheel Spins," by Ethel White, and of course, uh, anybody that's seen it would 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 uh, say it's a wonderful story about the uh, disappearance. Of a woman who is more than she seems. But when you're when you're watching it for the first time, which this was my first time watching it, you start to wonder if it's maybe a psychological thriller about whether or not Margaret Lockwood is is crazy. Yes. Like, is she, did she just imagine this woman, and and she's the only one that can see see her? You know. That's a very good point. And boy, there were a lot of people on that train that were involved in making her seem like she was. Uh... Over the had gone around the corner or over the bend or whatever that expression is, and those two guys, the travelers that start, they're in the <laughs> hotel in the in the mountains, and I'm trying to find their two names here. Is that Naunton Wayne as Caldecott and Basil Radford as Charters? I think those are the two, Caldecott and Charters. Yeah, that those those they were hilarious. That was they were those two characters were. <laughs> some of the best parts of the film for me and they, they had such great treatment at that hotel when they wanted something to eat and, the, and they were sitting in the booth <laughs> we don't have anything basically well, what'd you say to a grilled steak it's a very good idea. Well done for me, please. On the red side for me. Rene Potato Ash Panito. These people have a passion for repeating themselves. <laughs> I, I, I beg your pardon. Mm-hmm. He's trying to explain to you that owing to the large number of visitors, there's, there's no food left. No food? What sort of place is this? Expect us to share a blasted dog box with a servant girl on an empty stomach? Is that hospitality? Is that organization? Oh, thank you. I'm hungry, you know. What a country. I don't wonder they have revolutions. Uh, you're very welcome to what's left of the cheese. Uh, of course, it's not like beef steak, but it's awfully rich in vitamins. They got, some, they got some leftover cheese from Miss uh, <laughs> yeah. <Ms>. Froy. <laughs> and they were so British. Oh, oh they yeah. were. And they... <laughs> I mean, they have some great lines, like there's one about how those when those women walk in, the three women. Lead on, Boris. You see, I didn't expect you to come so quickly. Well, our legs gave out on us. That's we all. had to do the last lap in a farm car. Oh. I see we've got company. Don't tell me cooks are running cheap tours here. What is it, Boris? It's the avalanche. Avalanche? Avalanche, Boris. Avalanche. You see, in the spring, we've got many avalanches. You know, the snow goes like that. Bloop! And everything disappears, even train disappears under the avalanche. But I'm going home tomorrow. How long before they dig it out? By morning, it's lucky for you. You can leave by this train instead of your own. How you said it? It's a bad wind that blow nowhere no good. Well, talking of wind, we haven't eaten since dawn. Serve us some supper, Boris, in our room. I could eat a horse. Don't put ideas into his head. Uh, some chicken, Boris. Yes? And a magnum of champagne. Absolutely. And make it snappy. Absolutely. And may have a dictator who <laughs> might be painting it red. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have to stand here cooling our heels, I suppose, eh? Confounded impudence. Oh, third-rate country, what do you expect? I wonder who those women were. Possibly 
Americans, I should think. You know, almighty dollar old man. Well, I suppose we'd have to wait here. If only we hadn't missed that train at Budapest. Well, Carl, I don't want to rub it in. But if you hadn't insisted on standing up until they'd finished their national anthem... Yes, but you must show respect, Caldicott. Of course, if I'd known it was going to last 20 minutes... Well, it's always been my contention that the Hungarian Rhapsody is not their national anthem. In any case, we were the only two standing. That's true. Although, when, when the third act is going on, they turn out to be quite heroic when they're having that gunfight from the train with those... the, the unnamed country's bad people. Yeah, when they finally get on board with the fact that uh, Margaret Lockwood's character, Iris, isn't crazy, and there actually is a Miss Froy, they they really uh, step up and do what they need to do. So that's cool. But again, that's like this stereotypical like British uh, yeah. British citizen, right? Like traveling around the world and doing right by what needs to be done at the time. While encountering all kinds of bizarre situations on their travels yeah they were certainly different than that other gentleman that uh said oh we can make peace with these bad guys because he gets off the train and finds out that's not going to work is that cecil parker mr todd mr hunter? todd hunter yes and then the yeah. woman that sh that he was traveling with and in imdb it's in quotes mrs is in quotes and then todd hunter because i think they were having an affair, and he was more worried about whether or not his wife would find out about the affair than anything else. I regret, sir, there is only left two single rooms in front, or a little double room at the back. We'll uh, take the two singles. Very well, sir. It is. Thank you. At least you might have asked me which I preferred. My dear, a small double room at the back in a place like this. You weren't so particular in Paris last autumn. Well, it was quite different then. The exhibition was at its height. I realize that now. I need to rub it in. Yeah, there was a lot going on in this for a movie in, in 1938. There was that. There were these two British guys that come to save the day, the evil doctor. They never give away what country those people are from. And, and I was thinking to myself, if I was my dad and had gone to that movie in 1938, would I recognize that these are... Hitler's henchmen or Mussolini's henchmen, even though uh, there hadn't been any wars in, in France and Poland yet, but there was the Spanish Civil War in 36 through 39. So they, they did a nice job of kind of letting you know who it was without ever saying. But yeah, I, I just assumed that they were sort of like uh, the beginnings of like the SS or something like that. Um, and I, I thought that Dame May Whitty was the perfect spy. I mean, no, I, no, there's no way I would see someone on the train. I love that scene near the end when they get her off the train during that train battle, and she's like, "I've got, yeah. I've got to go," and and they they help her out of the window, and then she runs off and like jumps jumps down that into that gully, and they're not sure if she's been hit or not. And I thought, holy crap, she's she's awesome you know she was such a great character i was watching her and it reminded me of those uh margaret rutherford agatha christie movies where she played miss marple in the 19 early 1960s she was unflappable and really uh hard as nails she was she was a tough lady yeah and, and it we can't go uh, without saying that there's a lot of comedy in this movie too. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a, it crosses so many genres. It's a spy movie. It's a 
drama, it's uh, comedy, it's action. When it started, and the first time I watched the movie, which was quite a long time ago, the almost the full first act takes place in that Alpine hotel, and I'm thinking, what is what is going on here? These two guys kept getting a hard time from the hotel. Then there's the uh, Michael Redgrave. He, he plays Gilbert Redmond, and he's making all this noise and disturbing Margaret Rutherford's sleep. And if you please, sir, out. One, two. Sir, will you kindly stop? The whole complaining in the hotel, you make too much noise. Too much what? Too much noise. You dare to call it a noise. The ancient music with which your peasant ancestors celebrated every wedding for countless generations. The dance they danced when your father married your mother. Always supposing you were born in wedlock, which I doubt. Look at them. I take it you're the manager of this Sure, I'm the manager of this well, Fortunately, I'm accustomed to squalor. Tell me, who's complaining? This young English lady underneath. Well, you tell the young English lady underneath that I am putting on record for the benefit of mankind one of the lost folk dances of Central Europe, and furthermore, she does not but own the hotel. But some don't understand. Now, one, two. It's, I'm thinking... I'm sure this is headed somewhere, but where it's going, I have no idea. Yeah, and I, I thought, did did we pick a... Is this movie actually a movie that happens on the train? Because I was expecting it to, like, get to the train in the first ten minutes. But like you said, it's probably the first third of the film is, is in this hotel. And uh, that that they made it feel like that, that hotel in that little village was really remote. Like, this was someplace that was kind of lost in time almost. I know, without any food. yeah. That that was kind of bizarre, and then D- Dame May Whitty is out on the balcony. I think she's playing, yeah, you know, Miss Miss Troy, and there's someone down below singing. Oh right, yeah. And then that person gets whacked, <laughs> but we don't know quite how or why that's going on. But apparently, if I'm getting this correct, he was signaling Miss Freud some code through the song, through the singing. Right, right, because the code was uh, notes from a song. That's a good point. You know what? I, I'd have to go back and watch. Was he playing the same song that the code was in? I, I think he probably was. Only knock his Would you mind if I talk to you for a minute? What now? Yes, I. Please forgive me, but it's very important. Hang on to this for a minute. 
All right, I'll hold the fort. I think you're safer along here. You come to it. Go ahead, Lowe. I just wanted to tell you that I must be getting along now. But you can't. You'll never get away. You'll be shot down. I must take that risk. Listen carefully. In case I'm unlucky and you get through, I want you to take back a message to a Mr. Callender, the foreign office in Whitehall. Then you are a spy. I always think that's such a grim word. Oh, what is the message? It's a tune. Tune? It contains, in code, of course, the vital clause of a secret pact between two European countries. I want you to memorize it. Oh, go ahead. The first part of it goes like this. Oh, perhaps I'd better write it down. Have you got a piece of paper? No, don't bother. I was brought up on music. I can memorize anything. Very well. Hello, the old girl's gone off her rocker. I don't wonder. See? Why don't you fish? Oh, fine out. They will go on fire until they kill the lovers. For goodness sake, shut up, Eric. That's right. Now we've got two chances instead of one. You bet. I'm sure you'll remember it. Oh, don't worry. I won't stop whistling. Oh, this is my best way out. Yes, just about. But you may be hit, and even if you do get away, they'll stop you at the frontier. We can't let her go like this. No, this is a hell of a risk you're taking. Sort of job one must take risks. I'm very grateful to you both for all you've done. I do hope and pray no harm will come to you, and that we shall all meet again one day. I hope so too. Good luck. Good luck. I, I believe so. I believe so. And you know, at the, in the first act, I. I, I thought Michael Redgrave was kind of a pain. Well, he was. He was a, a real <laughs> jerk, I thought. But he he uh, redeems himself in Act 3. Beginning in the end of Act 2 and in Act 3, he he memorizes the uh, the song and is able to... <laughs> but, then he, but then he well, forgot it at the end. <laughs> at the, <laughs> at the <laughs> crucial moment, he can't remember it. <laughs> And the other thing that struck me is the way the movie ended. I know I'm kind of jumping around here, but they open the door, and there is Dame May Whitty, and boom. And that's the end. That's it. I thought that was a great ending, though. It was like... <laughs> it is. You know, they, she she survived, and they were there to deliver the message just in case, and it was all kind of a happy ending. And then just before that scene, we get the scene with... Uh, Gilbert and Iris talking about where their honeymoon is going to be, and it, they want to go someplace quiet. And I think they said someplace that's not on a train, <laughs> if, I, if I remember. <laughs> it's, I just found a I just found a little summary of the remoteness of where the movie begins. I'll just I'll just read it here quickly. English tourist Iris Henderson, played by Margaret Rockwood Lockwood arrives at the Gasthof Petros Inn in the country of Bandrika, one of Europe's few undiscovered corners. <laughs> they, they, it's, a, it's a fictitious country, a fictitious inn, the whole thing. It's funny. There's a, there's a neat camera move at the beginning where it, it's the very opening shot where the camera uh, kind of glides over the village and then kind of zooms in to the inn and you see this car kind of go between some buildings and then it pauses at the window of the inn and then it kind of does a cut to an actual window and you can see people inside. Yes. That's, that's a popular shot in a lot of movies, but 
uh, with technology today, they can make it all seamless so that the camera just goes right through the window. But I, I, I think that's the effect that, that uh, Alfred Hitchcock was going for, is, is this sort of one continuous shot right into the room where all these people are. He, he really liked it. He did a movie, I believe it's uh, called, well, I hope I have this right, called The Rope with Jimmy Stewart. And there's these long, long scenes of several minutes that are unedited or uncut. It's almost like a play. Hmm. And it takes place, if I'm not mistaken, in one location in an apartment. And it involves a murder and all kinds of things. But he was really innovative. Like the train scene where the guy almost gets hit by another train. He repeated that in a uh, in another movie with Joseph Cotton. And then it's been in other films throughout the decades. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think we've pretty much covered the plot of the film uh, in a very non-linear way. But the first third of the film is just kind of setting up these relationships between people in the inn. And they're all stuck there because there's been an avalanche which has prevented the train from leaving uh, on time. And then uh, Iris Henderson kind of strikes up this uh, friendship with Miss Froy because they both are kind of upset with Michael Redgrave's character, who's Gilbert, uh, making so much noise and being so obnoxious uh, in the floor of the hotel above them. And then on the train... Iris and Miss Froy end up in the same car, and there's a moment where Iris uh, leaves that car and goes to get some something. I forget what she, what the reason why she left, but then she comes back and Miss Froy is gone, and everybody in the car with her is saying that no, there's there's been nobody else here. There's I don't know who you're talking about, Miss Froy. Who's that? And then there's this whole series of scenes of, of Iris trying to find Miss Froy, and everybody is denying that there ever was a Miss Froy on the train. And that's when you start to wonder, is Iris going crazy and just imagining this this older woman that is named Miss Froy? And, but there's little clues along the way where... Uh, what the one I liked was when Iris and Miss Froy had gone to the dining car earlier. Yeah. And... Uh, Iris was asking her about her name and how you how you say it or spell it and and she writes it on the the window of the of the train and then later you see that when she's trying to find Miss Foy when Iris is trying to find Miss Foy and that's confirmation that yeah she actually was there and she ends up recruiting Michael Redgrave's character Gilbert to help her find Miss Foy and at first he's kind of just going along with her is kind of I think he's kind of likes her and is attracted to her but doesn't necessarily believe her but then as they continue their hunt I think he really does start to believe her and now they're kind of allies in this mission and there's a doctor played by Paul Paul Lucas uh, Dr. Hartz and he's sort of a specialist in the brain, and is trying to convince Iris that it's all in her head. There he is. That's the man. Oh, oh I say, I'm so sorry. I wonder if I can bother you. I wonder if you can help. How? Well, I was having tea about an hour ago with an English lady. You saw her, didn't you? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, definitely. I was talking to my friend, wasn't I? Indubitably. Yes, but you were sitting at the next table. She turned and borrowed the sugar. You must remember. Oh, yes, I recall passing the sugar. Well, then you saw her. I repeat, we were deep in conversation. We were discussing cricket. Well, I don't see how a thing like cricket can make you forget seeing people. Oh, don't you? Well, if that's your attitude, obviously there's nothing more to be said. Come, call it. A thing like cricket. <laughs> Wrong tactics. We should have told him we were looking for a lost cricket ball. Yes, but he spoke to her. There must be some explanation. There is. Please forgive me. I'm quite possibly wrong, but I have known cases where a sudden shock or blow has induced the most vivid impression. I understand. You don't believe me? Oh, it's not a question of belief. Even a simple concussion may have curious effects upon an imaginative person. Yes, but I can remember every little detail. Her name, Miss Froy, everything. So interesting. You know, if one had time, one could trace the cause of the hallucination. Hallucination? Oh, precisely. There is no Miss Freud. There never was a Miss Freud. Merely a vivid subjective image. But I met her last night at the hotel. You thought you did. Yes, but what about the name? Oh, some past association, advertisement, or a character in a novel, subconsciously remembered. No, there is no reason to be frightened if you're quiet and relaxed. Thank you very much. But we find out, actually, he's another spy who actually has kidnapped uh, Miss Freud. And then we get to the last part of the film where there's a showdown between the people on the train and Dr. Hartz and his uh, uh, accomplices in the unnamed country's uh, spy group. I don't even know what you would call them, but I don't think they were necessarily the military. It was it was kind of like a secret police almost. Secret police. In one of the things I read, they were referred to as the jack-booted villains. Oh, okay. Well, that seems appropriate. Jackboot. <laughs> yeah. They did have neat footwear. <laughs> I, I've got a few other anecdotes about the movie. Charters and Caltecott are two friends. The humorous characters, Charters and Caltecott, proved to be so popular that they were featured in three somewhat related films that were made by the other by other writers and directors. Oh. One of which I've seen and I'd forgotten about it. Night Train to Munich in 1940 was the first of those three, and it was directed by Carol Reed, who did The Third Man. And then um, when uh, The Lady Vanishes opened in the UK, it was an immediate hit and the most successful British film to that date. And then it was very successful in New York. Leonard Moulton uh, said that he included it in the films on his list of 100 must-see films of the 20th century. And The Guardian said that it was the best of comedy thriller ever made. Comedy thriller, there you go. Comedy thriller, yeah. <laughs> and there have been a lot of those since then um, where it's kind of funny, but there's also a lot of drama going on. I'm thinking of the Gene Wilder Silver Streak movie. Oh, right, yeah. That's, a, that's an example of that. So uh, the only thing I did not look up, I'm getting really lazy about this. I have to get in gear. I didn't look up on the American Film Institute where where it is. Oh, uh, yeah, we haven't done that the last few times. We got to get back on I the to get back to that. Get back on the train, so to speak. <laughs> on the train, yes. So I, uh, after careful thought and consideration, I would give the movie a nine out of ten. It's right up there for me uh, on so many levels. How about you? Yeah, definitely. Definitely a 9 out of 10. I, I almost could go to a 10 on this one. I have a hard time thinking of things that 
didn't work well in the film. There was a lot of things that just worked really, really well for me. So, yeah, I'd probably go with a nine, though. Do you do you like reading those? Uh, it's, uh, you can find them on a, a number of different websites. Continuity issues in the films, or oh yeah, yeah, those are those are always fun. I always look for those, and I guess uh, I've come to the conclusion that there aren't very many movies ever made that don't have some kind of a glitch in them. It's hard to to make a movie where you don't have those glitches because there's so many so many things to keep track of i mean there's that's a whole job on a film set is just continuity i know and it's sometimes done so well the other thing i on the movie that we both think was great i I, you know alfred hitchcock always liked to put himself in the film at some point near the beginning of the movie and i have forgotten if he's i'm sure he's in this i just don't remember seeing him Oh, really? I didn't see him at all. Yeah. yeah. I think that maybe he would have been in the restaurant scene at the inn or at the uh, maybe at the train station as they're getting to leave, but I, I can't imagine he didn't put himself in there. Oh, well, now I need to go watch it again. I've already watched it twice. I'm going to watch it again to see if I can find him. Well, I, I have a continuity error if you want to check on it. See okay. It. During the bedroom scene at the inn near the beginning, Iris and her two friends are having a goodbye party wearing very little Iris is standing above the footman delivering another round of drinks, wearing a tiny sweater in close-up, but only lingerie in the long shots. With And then it goes on, with Hitchcock's fabled attention to detail, it is surprising that he let the mistake stay in the picture. I have a hard time rem- I don't remember that at all. Well, I don't remember the continuity error, but I do remember that scene, and that was hilarious because the, the waiter that comes in was just like, what is going on in here? All these three women are kind of in their lingerie, and he's just uh, sort of like, uh, "Where do I put these drinks?" And there's because she's standing right on the table for some reason. There must be a very popular uh, approach to watching movies where you look for the errors that were made because they're they're always pointed out in the write-ups. I think that would be something that would be fun to do, but I just never can pay that close <laughs> of attention. <laughs> We, we could do one podcast on films that had the most continuity errors. <laughs> yeah, there's probably a list for that. I read one time, and I, I have never been able to see it, that in the making of Ben-Hur, the Charlton Heston movie from 1959, when they have that big chariot race around the Forum, that in one of the shots there's a red Volkswagen. Oh my gosh, really? Now, I don't know if that's an urban ledger or an actual situation, but I've never seen it. And, you know, the, the race takes... So much time and it's so fun to watch that uh, I've never I've never caught it. But. I bet you could do a search on YouTube and find that clip. No kidding. <laughs> Maybe I'll do that. Yeah. Well, uh, next week, what do we have? Our, well, next podcast, what do yeah. we have for our next? You tell me. I forget. We have the Harvey Girls. The Harvey Girls. That's with, right. With uh, Judy Garland and John Hodiak, and John Hodiak is rumored to have said when the studio wanted him to change his last name from Hodiak. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I have a face that matches the name Hodiak. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. From I, think it's, I believe it's 1946. It's a wonderful MGM, full-color, technicolor movie. Lots of music, some drama, some bad guys. And it's about a whole restaurant chain that was set up for uh, passenger trains across the West by Mr. Harvey. Oh, this sounds like fun. I've, I remember re- uh, hearing about this movie, but I've never seen it. You're going to love the costumes. I mean, you know, they really 
set the costumes to to uh, accentuate the technicolor beauty of the film. I love the summary on IMDb. The first sentence here it says, "On a train trip west to become a mail order bride." Susan Bradley meets a cheery crew of young women traveling out to open a Harvey House restaurant on a remote whistle stop to provide good cooking and wholesome company for railway travelers. Yeah. Wholesome wholesome company. It'd be like if you're traveling by train from Seattle to Portland, they'd stop in Centralia. And you'd all get off. You'd all get off and eat at the Harvey restaurant. Right. Well, and and I'm, I'm imagining that that's kind of a shorter train trip, but if you're going from like Chicago to Los Angeles or something, yeah, they'd stop. And... They'd stop, and you'd get everybody would get off, and they'd refill the the. At that time, probably it was uh, steam powered. There's a uh, remnant of that Harvey restaurant, I believe it's in Livingston, Montana, not far from my home, that was set up that way on the uh, Northern Pacific or the Great Northern or one of those rail lines. And that's exactly what it was. It's now a restaurant. It's a really nice restaurant, but it started out as one of the Harvey places. Cool. That's our next next podcast. All righty. Well, this has been fun as usual. Um, coming to you from Seattle, this is Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson, who is not lost in Los Angeles, wishing you <laughs> happy movie watching. <laughs> Where are we going for our honeymoon? I don't know. Somewhere quiet. Somewhere with another train. <laughs> The candle will see you now. Wait a minute. It's gone. What's gone? Oh, the tune. I forgot it. No, oh no. Oh, wait a minute. Let me concentrate. Dun, 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 dun. No, 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 no. That's the wedding march. This is awful. I've done nothing else but sing it since the day before yesterday. And, and now I've forgotten it completely. Are you lost in translation, though, like Bill Murray? <laughs> in some fancy hotel in uh, in uh, Tokyo. Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, that was uh, fun. Well, that was fun.